<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we welcome you to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. This is part two of my two-part interview with David Leaf. David Leaf has written a book about Brian Wilson. He knows him probably as well or better than just about anybody else. And, of course, Brian Wilson is a very complex character. The book is called Brian Wilson, The Beach Boys, and the California Myth, God Only Knows. So, David Leaf will continue to talk to me about Brian Wilson as my first in-studio guest in three years. Oh, I love this pandemic. Anyway, that's coming up right now on Hollywood and Levine. Now, I know a rock icon who generally will eat at, like, Mel's Drive-In. And I think because he is still just so steeped in that era. Is Brian kind of stuck back in the 60s and 70s, or is he just constantly looking forward? I mean, is he listening to the 60s channel on Sirius XM? Uh, Is he watching the Decades channel and watching old episodes of MASH? I would hope, but, you know... (laughs) Uh, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you rather he watched Cheers? At least that's uh, you know not the fifties. <laughs> that's right, it's the eighties. Yeah. Um, actually, uh, Brian loves Jeopardy. Okay, so why? So all right, so we got we have that. We all have that in Brian common. Brian and I are so similar in so many ways. <laughs> when it gets to double Jeopardy, though, he, you know things get a little tense. Uh, um, I was going to ask. Well, actually, I was not. I was going to be delicate to say, <laughs> does he ever get anything right? <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I can't answer that question on, on the grounds it may incriminate all of us. Um, <laughs> hey, I miss a lot of them, too. In, in terms of music, Brian, I think, to a certain degree, is, is stuck. Um, in, in, in the era he grew up in, the, the, you know, the, the, Which listening to the are. 50s, mm-hmm. the, the era where he did his greatest work, the 60s, and into the 70s. I mean, I, I remember, you know, an interview with him. Um, you know, in 76, where he said, have you heard Bohemian Rhapsody? I mean, is that not a teenager's dream? So he could hear and recognize greatness in any decade. Sure. Um, it's just a matter of exposure. In terms of restaurants, he likes to go where the best steaks are. So he's not going to Mel's Diner. <laughs> <laughs> or, or he loves the roast beef yeah. at Lowry's. You know, that, that's one of his favorites. All right. Another. That's fantastic. Um 
So uh, he's a baseball fan, also. <laughs> it's, it's like we're interchangeable, except I can't sing a note. Did but, you did you know he was the center fielder for his high school baseball no, team? No, I did not. Yep, Hawthorne High center fielder, great arm, great throwing arm, couldn't hit the curve. Uh-huh. His goal as a seventeen year old was to be the next Mickey Mantle. Wow, wow! I used to see him in uh, in a restaurant. Uh, it was a deli. And I used to see him there frequently, and he was usually sitting at the same table by himself. And I never felt comfortable just going up and introducing myself and telling him how much I appreciated his music. It just sort of had the vibe of he wants to be alone <laughs> you know now i i don't know and and maybe he would have been thrilled to have somebody say how much his music meant to him growing up but i just kind of felt that mm, give him a wide berth he he certainly gives off that vibe um the, the deli you're talking about at beverly glen mm-hmm. was a regular hangout of his in fact he used to go there Sit at the same table, the same waitress, the, you know, the same busboy, the same order. Then he'd drive down down Beverly Glen to the park, walk around the park for a while, go back to the deli, eat again, back to the park. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he grew up with so much noise in his head from his father. Um, and then the years with Landy, I think, I think he just was looking for peace. And, and, I, and I honestly think the only place he ever found it was either with a great steak or, or with a great melody at the piano. I mean, the, the music and food are, are, I think, are his two great loves, his everlasting loves. Did you ever watch him make music? Did you ever see him write a song? I saw him work on songs. I, I never saw him work on a song start to finish. Um, he wrote songs very quickly. Um, he's he, and he was very clear about. He says when songs come, they just come. He's 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 not somebody who forces it, and he he also believes that sometimes his hands are moving on the keyboard in such a way that it's as if somebody else were were controlling it. Mm-hmm. And when he means someone else, he's talking about God. Mm-hmm. Uh, God only knows was written in uh, twenty minutes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then they, discuss, they had a longer discussion about whether to use the word God in the title than the, than the length of time it took to write the song. Uh-huh. So he would write the song and, you know, he's playing it on the piano, remembers it, quickly writes it down. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and Would he change it? Would he like, da 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 no, let me try this chord, no, let me try oh, this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know... He, the the big thing that I think when people talk about his genius, so there's a there's a number of aspects to his music making that are remarkable. Um, one as a composer, you know, I because of the look you described in the deli, I used to think of it as his Beethoven scowl, like nobody come near me. Mm-hmm. After I saw Amadeus, I said, well, Brian's got that childlike quality. If you ask Brian. He thinks the composer he's most like is Bach. 
he thinks of himself almost right, like writing spiritual music, church music. It just happens to have, you know, surf lyrics on it uh -huh. sometimes or car lyrics. So, so those those songs uh, are very spiritual to him. My sense is he's writing that music to make himself feel better, and because of the depth of his pain, it works for us. So the melodies are really powerful. Then he comes up with these amazing arrangements, vocal and instrumental. Then he mixes it all together as a producer and 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 created these records by the time he was 25 that that earned him everlasting fame and uh, and BMI royalty checks as well. I know there are some great recordings um also some footage of the making of pet sounds and to see him directing the wrecking crew and having very specific things that he wanted that at the time just sort of seemed random. But when they all are put together, it, it fits perfectly. And it was very interesting to see these musicians who were the, like the finest musicians and they were like all in their 40s and probably 50s back then and they were going from one session to another and it's like okay who's this little schmuck who's who's giving us direction but boy he earned their respect very quickly because his stuff is just so amazing it is when 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 one listens to the pet sound sessions and hears him in the studio when 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 you look at what you're referring to they call it the if you if you google the the lost studio footage plus uh, the beach boys or or good vibrations you will see him uh talking to Hal Blaine and having literally directing him exactly how he wants the drum to be hit um the musicians loved him because unlike uh Phil Spector Brian had first seen those musicians working with Phil Spector. Phil was a bit of a tyrant, to say the least. Mm -hmm. not, not to mention convicted murderer. There's <laughs> <laughs> a joke line, convicted murderer. Um, but, but Brian is sweet. And in search of a perfect sound, and they were willing to do whatever it took to help him get those perfect sounds. Sometimes a session might be 20 minutes. He'd have one musician come in and pluck something on, on some instrument till he got it and he said, okay, thanks, Lyle. Other times it'd be three hours where he'd be working with a dozen or more people in the room. One of my favorite stories uh, that Danny Hutton tells, Danny Hutton, uh, one of the lead singers of Three Dog Night, and a man who I think is Brian's best friend in the whole world. Okay. Um, Danny was, was at the Pet Sounds and the Smile Sessions. And he said when Brian had... Uh, string players from the LA from the LA Philharmonic come in. Um, they were playing the notes perfectly, and Brian went out into the studio and said, "No, I want you to make it cry." And mm -hmm. no, no one had ever said that to him. They were <laughs> they were doing exactly they were right. hitting mm -hmm. the notes, mm -hmm. and very he, efficient. And, and Danny said he pushed them to another place and got the sound he wanted. And so there's a certain genius to all of that. Um, when, when I interviewed, I, I had the pleasure of working with Sir George Martin on a number of occasions. And he thought that Brian did what he did. 
he helped with the arrangements and produced. Mm -hmm. When I told him that not only did Brian compose all the songs and write all the vocal arrangements, but that was Brian's voice on top, the high, beautiful voice. George Martin said, that's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) You mean he composes, arranges, and produces, and sings? That's not fair. There's a price to that genius. Well, there there was. Look, all genius comes with a price. There's an obsessiveness to create greatness that that he had. And um, eventually he got worn down, torn down. Uh, There's a a terrific documentary uh, that you can watch online called I Just Wasn't Made for These Times, made by Don Was. And in it, Brian's first wife, Brian's brother Carl, Brian's mother, they all talk about Brian firsthand, this is what was going on. And when it comes to the post-Smile era, uh, Marilyn Wilson says they really tore him down. And Brian just stopped. He he couldn't help great music coming out from time to time, but he just, he didn't want to take control of the situation anymore because he didn't have the strength to fight what he was up against. You mention in the book that I think it was the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, and Jimi Hendrix said some quote like, you know, that's the end of surf music. You'll never hear surf music again. You'll never hear surf music again. Uh, basically implying that the Beach Boy era is over. Uh, did that get into his head? No, he was already in trouble by then. Okay. He, I don't even think he heard it. The Beach Boys actually actually were supposed to headline the Monterey Pop Festival. Mm-hmm. Brian was on the honorary board of directors, and he pulled the Beach Boys out of the festival for any number of reasons nobody really knows for sure. Um the, the the world changed in 1967. There's kind of the post Sergeant Pepper mm-hmm. world that 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 Brian didn't feel he fit in anymore with the Beach Boys. And in in this Don was documentary, when he's asked, so what happened? He says they wanted to make their kind of music, and I wanted to make my kind of music. And it really it it became almost paralyzing for him, which is why in the, in the 1970s, if you ask the question, where is Brian Wilson, the answer often would be, he's in bed. Now, part of the reason he was in bed was he was a night owl. He was hanging out with, with Dan, at Danny Hutton's house in, in Laurel Canyon with all of the crazy rock and rollers, Alice Cooper and Harry Nilsson, and I mean, the, the, whole, the whole world of it. So he might be crawling in at six in the morning and then going to sleep. So at 10 o'clock, say, where's Brian? Oh, he's in bed. Well, sure, he's in bed. He's asleep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you talk about the um, sort of the split between the Beach Boys in terms of what they thought their direction should be. And I guess during Pet Sounds and uh, Good Vibrations and Wouldn't It Be Nice and all, that there was a lot of friction between some of the guys who did not want to go in this direction. And uh, again, the vocals were like very intricate and very hard for them to do. So as opposed to the Wrecking Crew that embraced it and loved him, 
I guess there was an awful lot more tension during the vocal sessions. From all re- all reports, there was a lot of vocal. Te- there was a lot of tension during the vocal sessions. Um, the, the parts were so difficult, um, and Brian was so determined that they'd be perfect. That there was a lot of takes, a lot of hard work. They got it done. Pet Sounds is really a solo album. Uh, I think of it as Brian's emotional autobiography. Um, he sings more vocals, uh, more lead vocals on it than any other album. Caroline No is one of my all-time favorite Beach Boys songs. Car- God, is that heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. It was released as a Brian Wilson solo single, so there was some concern like, okay, is he getting ready to leave the group? Mm-hmm. There, there was all of this stuff going on, um, and there was nothing on this album that remotely sounded like um, uh, I Get Around. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, you know, it was a different, it, it, Brian was evolving. Not a Wendy in the bunch. Not a, not Nothing like Help Me Rhonda. Um, although, wouldn't it be nice as a pretty great up-tempo rock and roll song, it's just... It's it's a very it's mature. It's it's mature. It's, it's certainly more mature than be true to your school. So Brian had heard Rubber Soul in the fall of '65 and and said, "I'm going to make an album better than that. It's all going to sound the same." And this was the American version of Rubber Soul he heard, not the actual British version. Mm-hmm. And and so he set out to do that. He got he got he found a songwriting collaborator who he thought could help him express the emotional ideas he had. In Van Dyke Parks? This, this was Tony Asher in, okay. in, for, for Pet Sounds. Uh, Van Dyke would be the next project, Smile. And, and so when the Beach Boys returned from the road, he's finished the backing tracks, and there's some vocals for them to do, and it's like, what? Who's, who are these people? What is going on? <laughs> their, their world is being turned upside down. And so in 1966 into 1967, there was a resistance, and somebody referred to it kind of as a a Hawthorne mentality, that unlike the Beatles, who even though they came from the provincial town of Liverpool, they were educated, they became sophisticated and worldly very, very quickly. They had an enormous curiosity. Uh, The Beach Boys didn't have that. They were just being the Beach Boys. They were going out on stage going, okay, we're going to sing 25 minutes of our hits. What, what, are the, what are the latest hits? And so Mike Love is listening to these lyrics and going, how is the audience going to relate to Don't Talk, Put Your Head on My Shoulder, or You Still Believe in Me, or Hang On to Your Ego? It, di- it didn't make any sense from his point of view as the, the, the showman and the lead singer. With Smile and Van Dyke Park's lyrics, it became even more difficult. And at some point, Brian just shut down. He, he couldn't take the static and, and make this amazing music. Well, Mike Love is an interesting character, too. Um, I have to say, my encounter with Mike Love, okay, uh, we had a, a series that was going on the air called Big Wave Dave's, which listeners know was a classic. Uh, but <laughs> It was a brief classic. <laughs> but, but it was set in Hawaii, and we thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun to get a Beach Boy or the Beach Boys to do the, the song? We inquired about Brian. They laughed at us. Uh, and then we said, well, what about Mike Love? He writes some of these songs, too. 
So we had a meeting with Mike Love. And just sitting with Mike Love for 45 minutes, chatting, we came away and said, nah, <laughs> we, we don't want this guy in our life. There's something inherently sleazy about this guy. At least that was my impression. Uh, so Mike doesn't like me. If if one were to pick up his autobiography and go to the index and see my name and look at what he has to say, you would read that. But forget you and I and our, our experiences. He now with doesn't Mike. like me if he ever hears this. <laughs> if, if, if one were to Google the Beach Boys induction speeches at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, one would hear, one would see Brian make a beautiful, he read a beautiful speech about music. Carl then made a speech about Dennis, who had died a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. And then Mike made a speech which had the audience, well, in, in different stages of shock curiosity to the point that when Bob Dylan got up later that night, he said, I, I, I'd like to thank Mike Love for not mentioning me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but, you know, Mike Love, you got to give him his due. He is who he is. He's kept the Beach Boys going all these years. The, the question for somebody like me who was interested in Brian Wilson, the artist, is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? When they did the uh, Pet Sounds... Um, revival a number of years ago when, when Brian did the entire album on stage, which I saw at the Hollywood Bowl. And he had a, a different group, a young group, the Wondermans, I guess. They sang it better than the actual Beach Boys. <laughs> I thought the harmonies were actually better <laughs> than the the real guys. The the the, the kids in in the, in the Wondermans and the rest of Brian's band um, just are devoted to Brian and and bringing his music to life exactly as he wrote it, with with feeling and 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 perfection and energy they they are they love the guy and that those pet sounds tours were miraculous uh i mean something no one any ever ever thought they would see and and brian who had been told by the record company this music is too strange capital records really sabotaged pet sounds uh in, in those days there were these things called lps that people bought and so you shipped them to record stores. When the record stores sold the copies of Pet Sounds out and reordered them from Capitol, Capitol shipped them what was called Best of the Beach Boys, a greatest hits album, because they didn't want the Beach Boys going in the Pet Sounds direction. So they, they made certain that Pet Sounds was not a successful hmm. album, even though it had you know, pretty significant hits with, with Wouldn't It Be Nice and, and God Only Knows and, and Caroline No even and squeaked right. into the top 40. But but the live performance Snoop John B. Snoop John B. is a mm-hmm. big hit as well. Yes, mm-hmm. so so the the record company, uh, you know, there, there was nobody fighting properly for the Beach Boys, and and somebody asked me a question a couple of months ago, and I wish I had thought about this to put it in the book. But what's the difference between the Beatles and the Beach Boys? Uh, I said, well, you know, in 1962, Brian Epstein became the manager of the Beatles. And in 1962, Murray Wilson became the manager of the Beach Boys. So you had Brian Epstein, this incredibly worldly, sophisticated man, figuring out how to make the Be- the Beatles move forward in the world. 
And Murray Wilson, who was uh, bitter at his own failures in the music business, jealous of his son's genius, uh, kept it as a, a, a small family business, like like you know, it's like Whataburger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. Um, what is it like for Brian? I'm sure he got so much support from having his two brothers, Dennis and Carl. And the fact that they're gone, how much harder is it for him to navigate the world? Brian has always had a hard time navigating the world since the Beach Boys became successful. Because as the head Beach Boy, he was no longer just a brother. He was now the boss. And so they would work with him under him. They followed his orders, if you will, because they Mm -hmm. realized he knew what he was doing. Then for many years, he withdrew. When he came back in the mid-70s, very ill-advised, Brian is back campaign, ill-advised and Um, ill-executed. As Dennis Wilson said, in his absence, other people have grown up. Other people have things to say as songwriters as well. Mm-hmm. So there was there was certainly some tension. But Dennis always supported Brian. Um that that was the great the great bond was was between those two. Um unfortunately that also meant because Dennis was an abuser of substances that they spent a lot of time in the early eighties abusing uh, cocaine. So so he was very close to Dennis. Uh Heartbroken at Carl's passing in a different way. Um, Carl was a rock, but but Carl had one foot in the in the Beach Boys world, maybe one and a half feet in the Beach Boys world. So Carl was trying to keep that business going, and Brian wasn't interested in that mm-hmm. business, um, unless somebody said, as, as he once put it, they said, "You're getting a little thin in the pocketbook." That, you know that that always got his attention, but. Um, it, you know, it's now over 20 years um, since since Carl's passing, and um, it's it's very very it's just terribly sad um, when you lose siblings, when your parents are gone. You're the only one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I remember a night at the, at the house at the House of Blues in in uh, West Hollywood. It was a playback. Um, for a Paul for a Paul McCartney album called Run Devil Run, and, and Brian was invited, and he asked me to go with him. And afterwards, there was a um, a meet and greet, and Paul and Brian were literally born, literally two days apart. Hmm. Two days. Brian is the only he's two days younger than Paul. He's the only person on the planet who could have called him Old Man Pablo <laughs> and gotten away with it. <laughs> But that night was um, it was it was only months since Linda McCartney's passing, as well as Carl Wilson's, and the two of them went off to the side to to, to talk about what it was like to lose somebody you were, you were that close to, and um, you know in the in the book I, I I really had to draw a line in this update because in the original book I was a journalist I was just you know a, a man with a mission in this book I'm now theoretically an elder statesman looking back on the journey I've been on with my friend and it was okay what's the line I don't want to cross what do I want to not talk about what are what are the things that are too personal to write about and there's a lot um like 
you know, going to the hospital with Brian when Carl was, was very sick. I just, those are things that just don't belong in, in the book. No, but they do belong on this podcast. Well, that's what I'm telling yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, the, the, the Beach Boys literally, the Beach Boys started in the Wilson family bedroom. Brian teaching Carl and Dennis how to sing three-part harmony. An old, old song called Come Down, Come Down from Your Ivory Tower. It was a hit for Gail Storm from My Little Margie, for those of you old enough to remember. <laughs> Six of you out there. <laughs> and um, so so in my room is, a, is, is the Beach Boys version of what the three of them did growing up. And so the song still has the same impact when you hear it, when Brian sings it with the members of the Wondermints and the, and the other people on stage. But the DNA isn't there. And the notes may be hit better, but there's something about blood harmony. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, it's the same thing with the Everly Brothers. There's just something about the timber of the voice. Um, yes. It's just, it's very special. Yeah, the Bee Gees, who I also worked with a lot. I remember watching some documentary on Brian, and they were in the studio, and they were having problem with the harmony, that the harmony was complex and, and didn't work. And Brian said, okay, let's take a five. And then Brian went over to the piano and just furiously started playing boogie-woogie music. And he did that for like about four minutes. And then he just took out his pen and and wrote it down and and it was all perfect. <laughs> I thought to myself, what is going on in in that brain? Wow. It it it's it happened more than once. Uh Linda Ronstadt in in, in the update to to God Only Knows tells the story about Brian coming to the studio to sing background vocals on a song of Jimmy Webb's called Adios and watching Brian at work. And a very similar thing happened in Boogie Woogie Music was, <laughs> was played that day too. And, and she said, it's just, it's just genius. It's the process that worked for him. So let's talk about Brian today. What is he up to? Uh, is he still touring? I mean, a tour for anyone 80 years old has to be very rigorous, much less somebody who is somewhat fragile. Um, Brian today is at a place where I don't know if he'll ever tour again. He he did tour early, earlier this year. Does he like it? Well, so he he loves being on the road. He loves being around his musicians. He loves hearing his music played beautifully. He loves the crowd's response. He loves ordering room service, <laughs> but he's just not a performer. He 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 never was. There have been some great shows through the years, um, but but if I had a guess, I, I would guess his touring days might might be over. And so, how does he fill his days? What does he what does he like to do as a creative person? Is he able to just say, nah, I'm just going to hang out and watch the ball game today and uh, get a steak and eh, that's my day. 
He's that that would be more days than not. He uh-huh. he loves baseball. Loves going to Dodger Stadium. Uh went to Yankee Stadium a few times. We got a Yankee cap on him. Um <laughs> did he know that he had a Yankee cap on? Oh yeah. Well, remember he wanted to be he wanted to be Mickey Mantle. So, That's right. So um but I'm but, sure as a kid growing up in LA, he was a huge Dodger fan. No, I think he wanted to be a Yankee. He, okay. you know, he, he wanted to, he wanted to play for the Yankees. Um, you know, as a kid, the Dodgers weren't here. He was born in '42, so he was he was already um, yeah, that's true. Sixteen when they moved here. Yeah, that's true. So 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 uh, he is a Dodger fan. Everybody here on Hollywood and Levine. Um, <laughs> He's a Seattle Mariners fan. <laughs> well, if, if he listened to your broadcast, he would be certainly. Um, he loves baseball. He, I don't think he loves anything more than a good steak. Maybe a good piece of cheesecake after the steak. And he is the fastest eater you've ever seen. Oh, yeah. You got a 16-ounce steak. You just want to wolf that. What's his favorite steak here in L.A.? Uh, we used to go to Mastro's. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was another place I don't think that's there anymore on La Cienega we used to go to Bob Burns over in Santa Monica that's not around um, just a good a really good steak okay now I've got a recommendation for Brian okay okay if you ever go to Minneapolis again <laughs> okay there's a place called Manny's Steakhouse it's in the Fauchet Tower which is a hotel and they have it's not on the menu, but you can order it. The bludgeon of beef. Oh, God. Now, the bludgeon of beef is 50 ounces, 5-0, 50 ounces of great steak. That Brian, You and Brian uh, go in and order one of those things together. I think that'll have to be a threesome. Um, you know, he just... He just he loves thinking about eating. He loves eating. He, I could pick him up at his house. We would drive to the restaurant, have a salad, steak, and dessert, and be home in 45 minutes and not feel rushed because it wouldn't necessarily be a lot of conversation. In the car, we'd have the radio on. We'd be singing along to songs. He just light, He loves to hang out uh-huh. um, and not feel the, the, the reason our friendship survived was because I wasn't asking him to be Brian Wilson. Except on occasion, if I was right. producing a show right. and I needed him right. to, to go out and perform. But but he could just be one of the guys. So the guy who wrote vegetables eats steak. <laughs> <laughs> he likes vegetables, but not as much. You know, he had a health food store here in L.A. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect, too. Over 50 years ago. Uh-huh. I mean, on La Cienega, he had a, a health food store called The Radiant Radish. And if you went there, uh, you know, after 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 six o'clock, say, you would see him in his bathrobe stocking the vitamin shelves. Wow! So he wasn't hiding out in his room. Right. He, he was at his store. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in the car with him. You're driving along. Are you like listening to sixties music? And he's singing along. One of his songs comes on, and and he's singing along. And you're driving, going, "Oh my God, <laughs> that's." That's Brian Wilson <laughs> singing that song. You know, I don't remember if one of his songs ever came on, but if it did, my projecting, my uh-huh. guess is he would have changed the station. Really? Or he would have turned it up, depending upon his mood. I mean, think about 
everything you've done in your professional career, it reminds you of a moment in your life. Right. And if and if a particular record reminded you of a bad moment in your life, it's like I don't want to hear that. So you would you would turn it off. I'm sure there's there's got to be at least one great script you've written that you weren't happy at that particular moment. One? Yeah. Yeah, there yeah, there were a number. Okay. There were a number. Although what I remember more is like the week of production. Okay? So I'll see a script and I'll go, oh my God, we were there till like four o'clock every night. Oh my God, that was just, you know, pulling teeth. Yeah, well, that, so, that, that's what I remember. So his memory is spectacular in terms of sense of what happened at every moment in his life. Because people come, I, I saw this. I, mean, I haven't traveled with him on tour in, in, in ages, but people would come up to him and say, hey, Brian, I met you, and he would know exactly where they met. Well, so you could say, so like, tell me about the night uh, in 1962 when you went to KFWB and hung out with the DJ Roger Christian and decided to write songs together. He, he could if he wanted to. He happens to be extraordinarily tired of being interviewed and talking about the past. He has been interviewed how many tens of thousands of times, and people tend to ask the same questions. Mm -hmm. And so he just got tired of it. Oh, I can understand it, that. It, it's really tiresome. So his answers tend to get shorter and shorter as the, as the <laughs> as years As in, go. yeah. Yeah, it was a Thursday. Next question. Well, you know, back for decades when, when people were going to write about Brian after my book had come out, they would get in touch with me and say, I'm going to be interviewing Brian. What, what advice do you have? And I would say, don't ask a yes or no question. You'll get a yes or no answer. <laughs> because, you know, you ask Pete Townsend a yes or no question, he'll give you a yes, and then he'll explain it for 20 minutes. Brian's going to give you the least. Now, if you ask him, how did you feel at that moment? He remembers how he felt. And so maybe that's the, 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 the feeling in the music comes from those deep, deep feelings. Final question. Is he happy? I think Brian Wilson wasn't, I don't think he thinks he was put on earth to be happy. And I think um, he has had happy moments, happy times. Um, he's not in prison anymore, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. He's not under the thumb of his abusive father. That's a good thing. He doesn't have the record company screaming at him for more product. Um, but happiness is, how do you judge happiness? I mean, you know, he's got a physical therapy today at four. That's that's good. Mm -hmm. That guy's going to work me over good. I, I, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be happy during that. Then we're going for an early dinner. I'll be happy during that. Um, you know, he's got... He, he and he and Melinda adopted five kids. Um, one just went off to college. Two are already in their mid twenties. So he's had he's had a succession of lives that you'd almost have to ask that question about each out each day part. Were you <laughs> were you happy on Tuesday from twelve to twelve thirty? He's a very complicated guy, and I say that as somebody who has I think written more words about him than anyone else alive. 
and maybe talked more about him than just about anybody. Um, one of the reasons I called the book God Only Knows is because sometimes I just shrug my shoulders and say God Only Knows because I really don't, I don't know how to answer that question. But I think if you want to know anything about Brian Wilson at any point in his life, you listen to the music. And last year he put out an album called At My Piano in which he played just no singing, just piano versions of many of his favorite and most beloved compositions. And I think that'll tell you where he is today. Great. Well, again, the book is called God Only Knows, the story of Brian Wilson, the Beach Boys, and the California Myth. It is by my guest, David Leaf. Uh, it's a thick book. I'm looking at this thing. It's like 450 pages. And small type. You you got a lot in here, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the update could have been twice as long, but the, but the publisher said sixty thousand words. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. Anyway, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you, Ken. My pleasure. And there you go. My two part interview with David Leaf, all about the Beach Boys. Mad genius Brian Wilson. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. I am available if you want to reach me, Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. That's Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. Also on Twitter at Ken Levine. Also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, where I uh, show off some of my cartoons. So if you're interested in that aspect of my Airzots career, uh, check that out. Hollywood and Levine on Instagram. Thanks again for listening. Back next week with more right here on Hollywood and Levine.